0: Welcome to the Nonprofit Newsfeed, nonprofitnewsfeed.com, bringing you the best news from the best sector, news from a nonprofit perspective and what matters. This show brought to you by Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thanks for joining us. This week, this week on the Nonprofit Newsfeed, well, it's the last of the year, so happy end of 2023. And. Walking into 2024, we're covering some info uh, coming from Pew about teen usage of social media. We're talking about maybe a crypto comeback in 2024, giving opportunities and why tri- planting trees is not as good as it used to be. My name is George Weiner. I'm the chief whaler of Whole Whale.
1: And I am Nick Ashley I am digital strategy manager at Whole Whale. George is my boss, but we'll take it away with our first story, and that is that the Pew Research Center has found that more than half of teenagers use social media, quote, almost constantly. So in a recent Pew Research Center survey, a striking insight into US teens' digital life was revealed, and that nearly half of them reported being online almost constantly, a significant increase from the 24% reported in 2014-2015. This pervasive internet usage is facilitated by widespread smartphone access with 95% of teens having or accessing a smartphone. The study found that 58% of teens are daily users of TikTok and 17% in total describe their TikTok use as almost constant. So. From the nonprofit side, mental health organizations like the Jet Foundation work hard to communicate about the risks of excessive social media use among teens and young adults, especially. They produce content for for young users and caretakers. Experts cite the positive aspects of social media as well for teens' mental being, providing community where it's not necessarily there, particularly for at-risk groups, that being said, social media has penetrated the social lives of teens tweens and young adults at a scale that's quite frankly unprecedented and i think that nonprofits need to be aware that if you work in youth engagement community engagement youth sports education social media is just such a big part of your lives i'm sure if you're a teacher you already know that But George, I think there's a lot of takeaways for nonprofits working with youth and as well as nonprofits working on social media about how to communicate safely with those youth.
0: Yeah, we're huge fans, obviously, of the Jed Foundation and the work they're doing out there with regards to to mental health. and. When research like this is coming out, and as you mentioned, just over the past seven years, we're seeing like uh, effectively a doubling of people that are on it near constantly, according to self-reported data from Pew on this, which I do trust as a resource. That's, That's a pretty big shift in terms of usage. The other thing I know when I look at data like this is that actually YouTube is crushing it. You know, it is getting in terms of percent usage of teens between 13 and 17, 93% using YouTube, 63% use TikTok. I mean, that is, it is significant. You know, it's consistently YouTube for usage. Boys, 96% girls, 91% uh, across all ethnic lines, all over 90%. YouTube is, I think, a very smart place. For nonprofits to be paying attention to when they're creating educational, informational content for this audience, the, you know, the days of we, we wrote our, you know, download PDF or just website written articles, like I think kind of have to go by the wayside in the sense that like that is the starting point, but you must be video fine. All of your content. There must be a 60 second or less clip of the core takeaways you're trying to communicate to this audience. Full stop. Every single major platform, by the way, now has this short form video built in. And it is how this generation is consuming content. It is how, frankly, your message can get greater lift. I mean, this very podcast, you know, we have been working on making short clips. And I'll just say, like, the amount of general reach that that gets versus our our overall podcast is significantly higher 10x higher and it's something that we're going to continue to push on and to push for our clients of whole whale and and if we look at the impacts that i think ai is going to have on creating more text-based content than ever before every single day the reliability of seeing an actual face until obviously AI can just do all that communicating about a topic and an issue conveys that trust that you are going to begin to lose when you're just looking at walls of text put out by generative AI. So I think all of those things working together really are pointing me toward like, if you want to see what's coming, pay attention to what teens are doing. Over 90% across the board, every single gender demographic cut any way you cut it, video and it looks like YouTube.
1: Yeah, George, that's a great point. (laughs) Additionally, it's interesting what platforms are not at the top of that list. YouTube is almost 3X higher used by US teens than Facebook. So nonprofits that are putting all their eggs into nurturing young community members, young donors, et cetera, keep that in mind. Kids are not on. No,
0: I mean, it's just, you know, th- those are the, according to the, those data and the other, the other one way, way, way in the back. Hold on. Let's look up where, where is Twitter and X? It's at. Overall, U.S. teens at 20%. Yeah. Yeah. I was shocked that WhatsApp wasn't higher. It's at 21%. I really thought it was the, the medium disproportionately used for, for texting and in a interaction. It wasn't as nearly as high as I thought it should be. So kind of some prizes in here. So take a look. Thanks, Pew. As always, we love love the work.
1: Yeah. Phenomenal stuff. But again, that headline, that marquee headline half of us teens use social media almost constantly that's crazy if there's one thing you take away from this it should be that all right i'll take us into our next story and this one comes from hoel partner the giving block which reports that crypto donations which had reached a peak in 2021 uh, growing 15 hundred percent from the previous year and coming off of 2022 which is the second largest year for crypto donations processed by the giving block the next bull market george you're keeping an eye on the markets could ignite a record-setting boom in crypto philanthropy observers are paying very close to this of course you talked about crypto as a poignant giving trend and Experts predict that 2024 will see another Bitcoin happening, which is traditionally driven price action for crypto markets. And this could be a great time to re-engage in that crypto donation strategy.
0: Yeah, basically, it's, you know, it's not a prediction. Like The Bitcoin happening is happening in April. You don't need to know anything about it other than every single time that this has happened, it has driven a bull run and this isn't like a... Correlation. This is direct causation because of the way that it drives attention toward the overall crypto market, which maybe you're sitting there saying, like, oh, I thought that stuff was dead. Didn't they, you know, stop doing that? Uh, No, it is a $1.6 trillion market cap as we speak right now. And why all of this matters is because the other bit of data coming from the giving block that they can show is that. When the market goes up, so too do donations. They track with it. And that is for a few reasons. One is because frankly, more money, more activity is more liquidity. And liquidity events, which are uniquely different in the crypto space, which can happen suddenly, drastically, and massive tax advantage for initially just giving that crypto donation directly to an organization. And I think it tracks for younger philanthropists. We've covered this before. Younger philanthropists in the market tend to give, give more and more directly to organizations rather than storing it all in a DAF that is slowly released over decades. And so, look, I think it might be a smart play for you to make sure you have your crypto donation pathways set right now and 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 digging into that again smarter to dig that well before you get thirsty and i'm hoping for a great year across the board but i think this is an opportunity
1: absolutely crypto crypt go you are terrible i'm i'm the worst i'll see see you next year george (laughs) i'm out (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i'm out but not before this next story was which comes from the excellent journalist at wired and the title of this story is that to stop planting trees is the new strategy of the guy who inspired the world to plant a million trees so ecologist thomas crowther previously was a huge advocate for massive tree planting initiatives to combat carbon emissions, you see those companies, we plant a million trees for XYZ, has significantly revised his stance. In 2019, Crowther's research influenced a worldwide movement to plant trees as a method to offset carbon emissions, However, at the COP28 summit that just happened in Dubai, Crowther urged environmental ministers to halt mass tree planting efforts, a departure from his earlier advocacy. The reasons include messing with the biodiversity of regions. And also it seems that Crowther thinks that tree planting is in some ways a get out of jail free card for businesses that are doing the wrong thing and think they can cover their tracks by planting a heck of a lot of trees and kind of sends the wrong message. So George, this is really interesting actually because i know we've worked and engaged with organizations that plant trees and have talked about initiatives that plant trees as a form of carbon offsetting but it seems here that the guy kind of leading the charge on that is now saying that is not necessarily the best approach
0: i think it is a intellectually honest statement and in general we're not going to be able to move off of the saving us from the two percent two degree shift in the the climate that we need to i mean even if we covered every square foot of our good earth with trees which wouldn't make sense we don't do it so i think you just sort of have to acknowledge that there are other ways of doing it and you also have i think baked in there some of this like you know be careful with this justification you know there's all this behavioral psychology that shows that parents will pick up their children later if there's like a small fine associated with it when in fact you just want the parents to show up on time to pick up their kids. So by simply saying, oh, pollute all you want, and then by the way, make it so that you buy these carbon offsets. Yes, I do think you need to pay the full penalty and full price of the cost of the public commons when it comes to emissions, and and that has to be realized. But doing it with this sort of tree accounting doesn't scale to the size we need it. The solution has to be more diverse. And also great notes about the biodiversity, like frankly, planting entire monocultures causes massive problems, massive problems. You know, infestations can dominate a a monoculture very, very quickly and fires and other issues that that rise up. So, I thought this was good, and that also led me to you know some amazing data visualization out of a group that called Our World in Data, OurWorldInData.org. Fantastic! And maybe Nick, you can walk us through this CO2 and greenhouse gas emissions chart.
1: Yeah, George. So I'm going to attempt to do a yeah. live explanation of visual we're looking at, but if you don't know our world in data, it's a phenomenal resource. It compiles all sorts of academic data and makes it accessible uh, to the general public, particularly as it relates to statistics around anything from democracy to climate change. And this chart in particular shows per capita CO2 emissions. So if you can envision this graph, our Y-axis is tons of CO2 per capita, and our X-axis is over year. And we can see that the per capita kind of emissions of the United States peaked, it would seem in the 1960s and early 70s, and has come down significantly. So peaked at above 20 tons per capita of CO2 to now below 15 tons per capita of CO2. Of course, the net CO2 emissions are higher because there's many more people in the US now than there was in 1970. But I think that this shows that progress is possible. And I think that oftentimes when we talk about climate, it just seems so incredibly unattainable. And I think that that is an important narrative because it's the correct one, but also we need glimmers of hope sometimes. And we can see here that we've decreased CO2 emissions per capita in this country by significant amount, by 25, 30% just over the past 40, 50 years. And of course, there's obviously a, a ton of movement that needs to be done there. But I think that glimmers of hope are important for sustaining movements and moving towards our goals. Again, big fan
0: of our world in data. It's not just you know for climate change that you can look at uh, these elements, but it's just tremendous for storytelling and what you're trying to do and yeah i think your points about the the per capita is uh, is hopeful at least (laughs) in seeing some of this while there's some clearly like developing nations that in and around (laughs) in and around this are just making up the difference so by no means solved
1: absolutely and i will just caution one more thing for our listeners to understand is that the clean energy is not a not a panacea. It's not without issues. Um, I'm reading a book right now called Cobalt Red, and it's about uh, the use of slave labor in the Congo. Uh, The Congo produces 75% of the world's cobalt mining. Um, Cobalt is essential for all essentially rechargeable batteries, right? So this is not to say that the clean energy solutions we have are perfect. They are the sustainable, you know, eternal solutions to this. Innovation still needs to happen. And, you know, I think it's also important to, to understand there's a lot of complicated dynamics to, to solutions as well. But again, encouraging news and this visualization and, and I think a year that we could use some encouraging news. And speaking of encouraging news, I have a feel-good story. And this one comes from Nonprofit Quarterly. It's how an Irish bakery in Washington, D.C. called Green- Greensland bakery founded by Carolyn Johnson, says that she quotes, always wanted to create a social enterprise to help women recover from trauma. And to carry out her vision, she launched the for-profit bakery in 2020 that by design is leveraging its business operations to create sustainable partnerships with local workforce development organizations that can help support the people she works with. Johnston is from Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland has been a place that up until recently was relatively violent and the trauma of the people there still lingers. And I think that Ms. Johnson here found an amazing outlet to support people also going through their journey on recovery from trauma. Yeah,
0: I love the earned revenue models that also work towards social change. So thanks for for finding that one. All right, Nick, I have a question. You know it's coming. Oh, this is the dear. last one last one of the year how okay. did how did how did saint jude children's hospital help the gingerbread man that broke his
1: leg oh no i don't know
0: they gave him a candy cane
1: oh i got it a cane i got it yeah a
0: cane yeah a candy cane. because oh, gingerbread one. man that, broke his leg
1: that's a good one that's a good one
0: <laughs> all right nick i will see you next year Thank you for helping deliver the nonprofit news and other support on the podcast. This has been the Nonprofit News Feed Summary of the Week. Thanks for joining us. As always, you can find resources at nonprofitnewsfeed.com. And don't forget to sign up for our weekly email summaries of the best news from the best sector.